Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Next Goal Wins podcast. On today's episode, we are joined by former player, manager, coach and current sports psychologist Lee Richardson. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy yet another podcast. Alright guys, how are you? Good to be on episode 4 of our podcast. How are you keeping? Yeah, I'm good. Um, it seems to be positive feedback again from last week with Simon Grayson. Um, really good, interesting guest. And I believe we've got the same this week with another interesting guest in the uh, former player, manager and current psych- sports psychologist, Lee Richardson. How are you doing, Lee? I'm very good, Joe. Very good. Sam? Yep, very good. Yeah, well, uh, I think we'll go back to the start of your playing days. Um, you grew up in Halifax and made your debut for Halifax Town, which is obviously the team I support. What was it like to step out for the club, considering you grew up in that town? It was um, the main goal I had as a kid. And I was saying this to somebody the other day, uh, probably set my sights quite low, really. Um, not, I'm not saying that was um, a terribly bad thing, but yeah. I, always, uh, I always remember David Beckham, or reading about David Beckham uh, a few years ago, saying that he'd uh, his ambitions were to play for Manchester United and captain England, and look what you know. Guess what happened? Mine, mine was to, uh, as a as a young kid to play for Halifax Town. So, uh, but it was a, a, a cheat. That ambition was achieved, like you say. It was um, yeah, a very proud moment, um, and. Um, takes, it's a long time ago now, George. You can imagine <laughs> and. Uh, and so sorry, as you can imagine, remembering it is not so easy. But yeah, uh, yeah my debut was actually at Rochdale, so I didn't uh, make my debut at the Shea. I made my debut at Rochdale, but probably I can't even remember which is my first league game at the Shea. I have to say, <laughs> uh, but it was uh, yeah, it's proud. My dad's a Halifax Town fan for all his life, and w- like you, we went down there. I mean, you, I mean, your granddad used to take you down there, didn't he? But yeah. we um, we used to go down uh, every week and. Um, yeah, I was always a Halifax Town fan myself, never really followed any bigger team, you know, in, in inverted commas, so it was a proud moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you then moved to Watford for a season, uh, which I'm guessing is a very different place to Halifax. Uh, how did you cope with a move so early on in your career? And was it hard to settle given that you were only 20 at the time? Yeah, it's a good question. It was, um, it was stressed upon me by senior players at Halifax that, if you wanted to do well in the in the game financially, at least, um, you had to keep moving because anyone who stayed at a club longer than a couple of years didn't, you know, didn't do so well. Um, so I had it in my head from quite early on to try and, or, or at least, um, want to play for as many clubs and get as many transfers as yeah. I could. Um, Again, not particularly uh, ambitious aim, but just something to to go by. So, so when at, at the time the two the two clubs that were really most keen, I think were were Watford and ironically Liverpool. I think even your granddad may have uh, uh, come to watch me quite a bit for Man United at the time because we were there was three or four of us in the team at Halifax: myself, Wayne Allison, uh, a guy called Terry McPhillips, and we were all young sort of 18-year-olds doing quite well in the in the league side. So, obviously, all the scouts, certainly uh, in the north and probably most of the country, um, would come and watch us um, and we're doing quite well. Um, so, moving to Watford in the February, I, I just wanted to go. I wanted to leave. I didn't want to hang on. I think I left for a probably, it was a record fee at the time, I think, for a young player in the, in the division or in the lower leagues. Um, but I was really keen to just move. Uh, Watford at the time were top of the league in about February and, and cruising at the time. So I fully expected to end up playing in the then first division, which is what yeah. it would have been then. Didn't tra- quite transpire like that. But what helped me moving was a guy called Rick Holden, uh, who played for Halifax, who was sort of in his mid-20s. He'd signed for Watford... Um, the year before, or at least a few months before, so I knew somebody who was there, um, and so obviously that helped. Um, 
But it was pretty daunting. I mean, Watford was essentially London. Yeah. Um, having said that, I, I had left home already. I'd left home and moved out locally before I, before I went to Watford. Um, but yeah, I, I remember feeling sort of it, it was kind of quite daunting going from a squad at Halifax, which was just, you know, a threadbare sort of 15, 16 man squad to then Watford had a, ma- a big, big squad at the time with quite a lot of well-known players, you know, some, some, some big, uh, big name players. And they were fully expected to get promoted that year, which they didn't in the end. Um, but it was uh, nonetheless quite daunting, but at the same time exciting. Yeah, the, your next move came to Blackburn Rovers in 1990 uh, mm. and you were part of the team which achieved promotion to the first year of the Premier League in 1992. Uh, you beat uh, Leicester City 1-0 in the playoff final and you actually played against Simon Grayson who was our guest last week. Although you came on as a second half sub for the game, what was it like to be part of uh, such an occasion? Yeah, I forgot Simon probably played in, didn't he? Yeah, um, yeah fantastic. I, I remember Wembley was the old Wembley, if you like. It was it was probably the year or two before it it, it was um, sort of dismantled and the new Wembley was built. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do remember more about that period was building up to that. Kenny was the manager of Blackburn, and he had a uh, a way of picking the team which kept everybody guessing, and both. I, I was a sub in the first semi-final uh, fixture against Derby County and I came on just after half-time or at half-time, I can't remember, with a guy called David Speedy and we were lose, the team were losing 2-1 at the time or 2-0 and we kind of came on and had a big impact and we ended up winning the game 4-2. We then went to Derby County at the old baseball ground and I played albeit slightly kind of in a position I didn't, I didn't particularly enjoy playing, but it was, I played wide right in front of uh, David May. Um, and we, were, uh, sorry, we lost the game 1-0, but we got, we got through. And it was a tight game, and I fully expected then to get the nod to play at Wembley. And all the, the game lead, all the week building up, it was, the shape looked like that was going to happen. Um, but then, as he as he sometimes did, Kenny, on the sort of day before or a few hours before, in fact, I don't even think he picked the team. And we found out an hour before, or an hour before the kind of uh, journey to the ground. So I was I was left out and put on the bench. And he played uh, a lad called Chris Price, who was a kind of full. So he play, basically played two fullbacks down the right hand side, Kenny, to be sort of nice, you know, stay, safe. So obviously that was a bit of big disappointment. It's one of the biggest disappointments probably in my career not to start that game because yeah. it was a huge, huge game. Even then, it was the first. I'm pretty, th- I'm pretty sure it was the first playoff final to get into the new Premier yeah. League. Yeah. Um, but even then, it was a massive, a massive thing, you know. So um, I mainly remember the disappointment of that. But then there were only two subs, I think, or maybe even one sub, and I was, a su- I was at least one of two subs. And I came on for Scott Sellers, who was, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, and um, came on with about fifteen minutes to go. And my biggest memory after that then is, um, and this was on camera, but I, I was I was predominantly a right-footed player. Uh, I could run then, though, you know, not like now. <laughs> and uh, I remember getting the ball and running down the left-hand <clears> side <throat> of the pitch, and getting to the byline. And David Speedy was actually clear. I'd got clear of, of Leicester's defence. <laughs> And you know when you, I don't know if you've ever done this, you two probably haven't ever done this, but if you, so you go and try and kick a ball, but you just touch it with the opposite foot, oh, and it just yeah. moves out of your way, and, yeah. you, and you trip yourself yep. up. <laughs> Most kids have done. Well, I did that at Wembley with 80,000 people and watching. Over. And I fell over, and, and 80,000 fans laughing is not a good sound when, you're, uh, you know, when that happens. But that's my over, overriding memories of disappointment and then making it. Making an arse of myself, yeah. Yes, well, and all a good day by the sounds of it. Um, you touched on yeah. it there. Um, what was it like to play under Kenny Dalglish? Great. Uh, in the main, I thought he was, you know, fantastic guy. Uh, anyone who knows Kenny, sort of, or gets to know him, knows that he's a, you know, he's a witty fella. Uh, far from his sometimes the media persona that he was uh, presumed. Uh, or, the, or the personality he was presumed to have by the media 
in his day, he was always very sceptical of doing interviews and things like that. So he never really, he never really transmitted his true personality. I don't think a bit more maybe in the later years. Uh, but he now he's uh, just a real good guy and w- such a fantastic player that you just respected him. Um, he wasn't really a coach as such. I have to say he was he was more somebody who was just very knowledgeable about the game and. Uh, but when he spoke, you listened because he knew he knew a lot, gave good sort of tips that weren't necessarily coaching on the pitch coaching. There's different types of coaching, I suppose. He was more someone who just had great knowledge and could mention one or two things to you that would stick in your mind and um, would help make you a better player. So he was a coach as, as such, but not as sort of a, the, the, the modern day, you know, stand on the pitch and, and do sessions, that sort of thing. Yep, so you moved across the border to Aberdeen after this. Uh, where in your first season you finished second to Rangers in the league and lost both the Scottish League Cup final and Scottish Cup final to the same Rangers team. What were the main differences mm-hmm. you found between the footballing culture at Aberdeen compared to the English clubs you'd been at before? Yeah, that's a good question. It was um, yeah, quite strange really. There were, some, there were some good players and two or three good teams in Scotland at that time. Celtic Rangers ourselves probably... Maybe Hearts, I think, I seem to remember, or Dundee United. But then the rest of the league was a kind of um, a mixture of levels of ability. So it was not, you know, was, most of the games were fairly easy, if I'm honest. Um, but then playing the old firm games, you know, that was obviously more of a challenge and more like a Premier League standard yeah. or a first division, well, Premier League as it was then. Um, and I'm fairly sure Aberdeen could have probably competed. Um, in the Premier League with the players that we had. Um, I remember we played actually Blackburn in a friendly as a consequence of my transfer, I think. Um, yeah, it was it, just a, the depth of quality, I suppose, the depth, uh, the quantity and quality of players in England and Scotland, were, were, was a, there was a difference. You could notice that. Playing against Rangers, playing against Celtic, you know, midfield-wise you had, they had Stuart McCall, Ian Ferguson, Ian Durant, um, a Charlie Chenko, a Russian guy, Trevor Stephen. They had some good players. Uh, Celtic had Paul McStay, John Collins. You know, again, really good players. So they were, they were all good enough to play in the Premier League. So that that kind of competition level was was was, was good. Uh, but it wasn't the, the case for all the teams. So I suppose that the main difference would be the the depth of quality of player. It just wasn't the same. Um, yeah. And the refereeing standards were a bit poor. I seem to remember they were. It, it's very, it can get very tribal in Scotland, you know, more yeah. so than even in England. Uh, and I was, you know, we were quite a high-profile team. We were challenging Rangers for everything, and Celtic, and me personally, as a probably as an Englishman uh, with a long, long hair and a beard, kind of stood <laughs> out a little bit. So I was, <clears throat> I, I, I got a little bit of bit of stick from the opposition fans and from the media you know was it hard you know you mentioned that the quality between the top teams and the bottom teams were was so vast was it hard to you know switch between them between games like say one week you were playing a team that wasn't very good and the next week you had to go to Ibrox and play Rangers was it hard to get you get you in the right mental state to play these big games that's a that's a that's a, one of the best questions I've <laughs> ever been asked because it, actually I've forgotten all about that. But you were you bang on. You absolutely yeah. It's uh, that was a, very much the case in Scotland. It's probably one of the big the, one of the big factors that you were and why I, I always in my mind didn't want to stay there too long. Yeah, because it was that you know you were going from playing Partick Thistle. I mean, I remember we beat Partick Thistle seven nil. Uh, at, at Fir Hill one week, and then you'd be the next week. You'd probably be playing Rangers or, or Celtic, and it was that was part of the mental battle. And to be fair, um, yeah, I think Willie Willie Miller, who was the manager, uh, would would often that would be often his biggest challenge would be to get get us to 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 stay focused. Um, like you say, I mean, I suppose in many ways. That's a challenge for you for now for for obviously Liverpool yeah. for United of of the of the years of Sir Alex and um, whoever is at the top in the English Premier League has to do has a similar challenge I suppose but probably not to the same degree that 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 was mm-hmm. for us 
So that's a really good question, Joe. Top marks. For <laughs> <laughs> um, you then moved to Oldham and had spells at Huddersfield with loan moves to Stockport and Borough. Uh, for a player, what was it like going out on loan and how did you settle into a club knowing that you weren't going to be there the following season? Yeah, I mean, it's, so f- for me, kind of the change, when I came back down from Aberdeen, I went to Oldham, uh, as you say, um, fully expecting them, they just got relegated from the Premier League, full enough it was Man United, Mark Hughes scored a winner, mm. or an equaliser at Wembley, one, uh, I can't remember what year that will have been, 94. 95, 6, something like that. And Oldham at the time were middle of the of the Premier League and I'd already agreed to sign with them um, in the in the March, I think it was. Uh, Paul Stretford, you may know the, the agent. He was my yeah. agent at the time. Um, and that was already sorted out and I'd already kind of committed to doing that. And then um, Oldham went on a terrible run after that and got relegated. But I was still sort of kind of thinking, well, I, I don't think, I'm pretty sure I could have probably got out of that and yeah. gone somewhere else. There was a couple of other Premier League clubs that were, I think, were interested. But I'd, I'd set my mind on that and, just thought, and I thought with the, with the quality of player, Joe Royal was the manager, yeah. we'll get straight back up, it won't be a problem. Uh, but it was a problem. Um, and Oldham basically went on a massive slump after that. Joe Royal left a couple of months later. Um... And that's where my career started to just waver and probably where I started to get interested in psychology because I think at the time I was probably a little bit burnt out. I'd played yeah. a lot of football by then. I'd, I'd, got, I'd had one, two, uh, three, four moves by then at the age of 26, 27, maybe a bit younger. And, and played a lot of football. Um, and... It kind of was, even though it went well for me individually at Oldham, because as a team we we just literally crashed, and, and we were end, I ended up had had having three relegation battles really. Yeah. Um, although I was personally doing okay, it was hard work, and so you get to the end of that contract, and you're then 28, coming up near to 29, and I was out of contract with a year of Bosman. Uh, the Bosman ruling had just yeah. had been. Uh, agreed, but it wasn't to come in till the following summer. So I was out of contract at Oldham, but Oldham could still demand a transfer fee. So I think they wanted it initially something like three quarters of a million quid, which mm. at the time no one was going to pay. So I ended up getting sort of stuck at Oldham, and that's when I went out on loan to Stockport. We were in the Championship at the time, uh, and ended up signing for Huddersfield. Um, but all the sort of stress and drama over that it started really well at Huddersfield got managed to, to help them get off the bottom of the league but then started to pick up some injuries suspensions there was a silly suspension uh, rule that came in that year which meant that I had a kind of a knock-on suspension which meant I missed about four or five games through suspension then injury then illness and it was just a disrupted period yeah. um, and so uh, I got a serious injury which then when I got back fit, I think Bury was the was the, the uh, low move that got organised by I think Steve Bruce who'd come in by that time. So yeah, it was it was more by necessity to to want to play football again than than actually a real choice, you know. And, and it was it was strange, and it was just but at the same time, it was almost like a survival instinct of wanting to get out and play yeah. and get in the shop window or or to just to, to kickstart my career again. Because it had definitely uh, started to get uh, disrupted by what had happened at Oldham, you know. Yeah, well, you finished your career playing at Chesterfield in 2004 before returning in 2007 Mm. as manager. How did you make that transition Mm. from player to manager? It's not, well, player to uh, coach, assistant manager first, because I was assistant manager for... Uh, four or five years, actually. I was uh, started off um, assistant to a guy called Dave Rushbreed. The club was in financial difficulties and we had lots of trouble. And he asked me to help him out. He was he was given the the, the manager's job, uh, and I was kind of an experienced player. So he asked me to help him out, which I did. Um, and then he got the sack after about a year. So I was his assistant for about a year. And then a guy called Roy McFarlane came in, uh, who was a great guy. Um, you know, himself a, a fantastic player in his day. Um, 
And um, I had four years with Roy as assistant manager. And so that was the first transition was going from being a, a player to being a coach or manager with the same group of players that you've just been playing with and having a laugh with and all that sort of thing, you know. So that's not easy. And I, I remember observing Graham Sharp do the same thing at Oldham when he was he became manager after Joe Royal. And he'd been one of the lads having a laugh in pre-season uh, and then all of a sudden he became the manager. Yeah. Lee, it's not uh, a, what sort of approach did you what sort of approach did you take to that transition from player to manager is the, of this of obviously the same group of players that you played with? Yeah, I think uh, you just uh, initially Sam you're just going by instinct because there's no uh, yeah. certainly in those days there was no textbook on it. Um and I don't think it actually happens to that many players now um where you go straight from playing to yeah. then coaching so it's or, been more of a process. It was just more of a adapting, you know, on your feet to to what you felt was the right thing to do. Um, cr- you know, merging that crossover between um, being a lad in the dressing room and and get, getting the right distance, if you like, it's not it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, so I was fortunate in a way. The lads were, were were a good set of lads, so I think they, I think probably early on, I faced up to it in terms of explaining that that was. Obviously, a change that was going to have to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so it did. I think one of the bigger things I remember was that there was probably three or four of us who used to travel in together. And that's one of the things I had to say is, look, I'm, it's going to be difficult for me to <clears throat> to travel in as your as your coach or assistant manager because um, mm. I'd be having phone calls and conversations that would probably be involved in some of them. So, so it was not easy, but um, somehow I managed to do it because I managed to survive for four years and then, and then that's when I got the manager job after that. Fantastic. Yeah, uh, so leaving management, you moved into where you are now, which is obviously the sports psychology side of the game. Um, was that always mm. a dream or sort of the, the idea during your playing days that you wanted to move into that sort of area or was the lack of jobs in management maybe pushing you towards that career? Yeah, I think that going back to the being assistant manager up until, so at the same time as the career, my career was kind of stalling and sort of, you know, hopefully a bit like what we're, we're hoping the coronavirus is, doing, <laughs> but that was my career. Um, I uh, I remember basically thinking, you know, I've got to start thinking about what's coming next because those, you know, even though I was a championship player most of my career, I suppose, verging on the Premier League. Financially, you know, it's a million miles away to where we are now. So just, you know, wandering off into the sunset and retiring is not was not an option. Yeah. Um, and that's when I suppose thoughts about coaching, thoughts about what else I wanted to do were, were in my mind. So around the time I was at Oldham, I, I know I was definitely keen on thinking, you know, I'd like to maybe study and educate myself and do a bit more than just football. I was probably getting a little bit bored stroke burnt out with with this the challenge of of being a footballer because it's as you know it's not it's not easy so that's when I started looking around for stuff and the open university were were doing a, a course and a kind of a introductory course into social science and I read the kind of the you know the the description of it and it sounded quite interesting which led on to then modules around psychology and then thoughts around, you know, knowing what I knew then about the game and about how 85% of it is massively about what's going on up here yeah. or, or somewhere around those figures. Uh, even though it wasn't massively talked about explicitly, it was up to people like your granddad and Sir Alex and Willie Miller and Joe Royal to take care of that side of it by virtue of the fact that coaching... The coaching process is a psychological process like most things are in life. You're talking about interacting with people, motivating people, connecting with people. That's all a psychological process. And so the fact that that was the case, and I was I was aware of that, um, even though there weren't really any psychologists in football at that time, I, th- I still felt, well, surely this, is, this has got to be looked into in a little bit more depth. Mm. So that's when it led on to me carrying on studying as a, uh, the, and it, what turned out to be a degree in psychology. At the same time, I was pursuing the coaching path as well uh, at the same time. So in terms of 
was it something I always wanted to do? No. Um, but was it something that started to emerge in my mind that actually, as a backup plan, if the the, sh- the shit hits the fan, can we swear on these podcasts? <laughs> yeah, feel free. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. I haven't thought of it, that one yet. You can, ble- you can bleep it out later. <laughs> so if, oh. if the whatever hits the fan, uh, then maybe it's something I could look into. And that's essentially what emerged. So I went into the coaching, completed my... Um, Completed my my degree while still assistant manager, um, and then went down the process of trying to be a manager. Obviously, that although you know it went okay, I had a decent you know I had under, over hundred games at it. Win percentage was not too shabby, but it wasn't so much that I couldn't probably carry on. I probably could and probably would have got a job at some point, yeah. but I couldn't really afford to carry on. I had a, after about a year out of work trying to get a job. I remember your granddad was fantastic at the time. Does everyone know who your granddad is, by the way, on this podcast? Yeah, he was talked yeah. about last week. From last week, yeah. Yeah, right. So your granddad was one of the best people for me at that time. He, um, you know, he, he, would, he would really sort of try and support me. Every time I saw him, when I used to stand in the playground <laughs> at All Saints. We'd have a chit-chat and talk about football and he would say and he he was really supportive and uh, you know I always always was grateful for that and even though it didn't work out in terms of getting me another or you know I didn't get another chance as a coach as a manager I mean I've known your granddad a long time so I'd always looked up to him anyway but yeah he, he was extremely supportive and it was just getting to a point where after about a year you know, the nearest I'd come was a year earlier with Sam, with Big Sam at, at Blackburn. Black, uh, your dad was at Blackburn at the t- uh, Your granddad, sorry, was at Blackburn at the time as a coach, as a scout. And I got close, I got between myself and the guy called Steve Keane to get a first team coach's job at Blackburn. And he gave it to Steve Keane and then um, that didn't work out too well. Um, but that was the nearest I got to getting another job. Yeah as a coach or a manager which would have been first team coach at a Premier League club so I'd have gone from Chesterfield as manager to first yeah. team coach at Blackburn in the then, then in the Premier League um, and the final straw for me was uh, getting into the into a, an interview position at Oldham Athletic where you know to be fair I wouldn't think two out of three seasons I was player of the year um, and in the shortlist there, were, there was nobody really I looked at and thought wow I've no chance here. Yeah. And they gave the job to they gave the job to Paul Dickov. Now, all due respect to Paul, that's no slight on him and, and fair play to him. But the rumour was that he was happy to settle for a sort of a low wage. I don't know whether this is I'm gonna get myself in trouble here. <laughs> um mm-hmm. but that's something I couldn't afford to do. You know, I had four kids, my career, Paul's a bit younger than me, managed to financially do better or better because the game obviously the, the money was coming into the yeah. game year by year. And it started to dormant on me that actually, no matter how much I thought I might be a decent manager, you know, the, the game of football doesn't sit still or stand still for anyone. Yeah. And I just literally, you know, we were literally on the verge of losing the house. And I had a decision to make whether it was, look, forget it, start again and try and build a career that um, gives you a chance, more of a chance to, 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 to have a career. Because football management and coaching is a great job. It's a crap career. Yeah. That's, the, yeah. that's unfortunately, unfortunately the harsh reality of it for anyone. Because there are, there are hundreds of good coaches and managers out of work now. Yeah. Uh, and that's, why I, I, that's, the, that's the tough bit. Coaching and management is easy. <laughs> it's great. It's such good fun. It's the, <laughs> it's the, it's the not being able to work at it or, or earn a living. And if, you, and if you're not bothered about earning a living from it then that, that's fine as well because you can coach you can coach amateur teams you junior teams and not necessarily get any money for it yeah. and you'll still get the same rewards of coaching and working with teams and, and all the rest of it but it, it, it well look I don't want to dishearten anyone but it's, it's not <laughs> it's not a career as such certainly in terms of that you can you know like you can bank on as an accountant or a a solicitor or, or fireman or a, or a plasterer or whatever it is where you know you're going to get work you can't you can't guarantee that and that's the that was the ultimate problem for me and so the career change was motivated partly by 
having actually explored it and looked at what could else could I do, got on that pathway, tried the other pathway, seen how difficult it was to stay on that pathway and thought, you know what, I might as well try and jump ship and give it a go. And I think hopefully, touch wood, it, it's so far it's probably been the right decision. Um, how did you then trans- transition into employment and psychology? What was your first rule? Yeah, so essentially I started by setting up my own business. All right. Because the, the psychology, psychological landscape of practitioners and who does what is such a confusing and uh, broad range uh, and broad area. Um, and probably would, would need another podcast to go into the different <laughs> mm. uh, options there are and, and different to- sort of uh, um, practitioners there are out there who, who claim different things. The first thing was really for me to set up a business and to look to start to get some more qualifications to give me some more tools to be able to operate uh, uh, in what I understood to be what, what a psychologist does. And I'll briefly explain what they are, I suppose. So, and the crossover then with lots of other areas like coaching is education. So primarily, one of the primary focuses for a psychologist, and that's when I say psychologist, I mean that's someone who's done a psychology, at least done a psychology degree, is a member then of the British Psychological Society, I think if you, I think I'm right in saying if you've got a psychological psychology degree that's recognised by the BPS, you can then call yourself a psychologist as a member of the British Psychological Society. In order to become a chartered psychologist, which is a step on from that, you have to then do a master's at least, and then complete a chartered uh, pro a chartered uh, supervision process, which is a long, much longer process. Uh, which I've just about finished off, and that goes on for years and is extremely frustrating. If you, as somebody who has not completed that process, has managed to survive in some in, a, in an industry like football, which is notoriously difficult, of which someone like me has done for 10 years now. So it's about... Um, Going back to where I'm, I hope you're keeping up. I hope I'm making sense of all this. So going back, going, going back to the start, yeah. going back to the start was, okay, what do I do then to give myself the credibility yeah. from an academic point of view? I already have credibility as an ex-player, coach and manager, but I don't want to just take that for granted. And because I've got a psychology degree, um, you know, everyone should just fall over backwards because that's what I've done. Yeah. So I was very keen to, to get the skill sets that, that, that were in place. Now, at that time, I was fortunate that I had a kind of a psychological mentor, if you like, who's a guy called Peter Leakey, who um, was actually, who worked alongside me at Chesterfield. He was a, he was a very well-esteemed mm. cl- uh, clinical psychologist, not a sports psychologist, but a clinical psychologist of 40 years experience, who was also very interested in sport. And had done some kind of crossover qualifications and had done a little bit of work in sport. But he was a, a good guide for me and he sort of pointed me down directions of certain uh, short courses that I could do which would give me certain skill sets in some of the other areas of, of what a psychologist does. So we've talked about education, which is more about what you know from what you've learned, I suppose. The next sort of thing area to cross over is, is um, kind of counselling and therapy. Uh, so let's let's separate them two out. So therapy is where you use some particular tools that you've learnt about, I suppose, would be the best way to describe it, in a process of working with somebody who maybe has a psychological issue that they need to work about uh, to 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 discuss or or work through. And it's very much a do with process. It's not a do to process. There's a lot of myths around what psychologists do and psychotherapists do. It all sounds very <laughs> but it's it's really it's really not it's really not it's using some techniques to get people to actually unlock some of the things that are actually going on within themselves and it's very much a, a shared process it's not a you know we don't stare into your eyes and go Ooh, you're fixed now that, that that that's not what psychology uh, that's not what psychologists do but um Counselling is very is a little bit more passive and a little bit more just kind of being a friend, I suppose, but mm. but in a way that's hopefully guiding someone through a process uh, of change, maybe. 
Um, so, yeah, so education, therapy, uh, counselling and sort of mentorship, I suppose, would be another area that, that, that crosses over. And you, you can probably spend time doing each, each, um, each area, um, you know, education, sorry, counselling stroke, stroke therapy, mentoring stroke coaching. So coaching would involve, there are coaching psychologists who look at things like personality profiling and look at things like looking at people's strengths and using tools where people might look to develop themselves and look at sort of positive psychology. So there's a broad range of stuff there and not everybody has a psychology degree or has a master's or has a chartered status. So it's quite a broad mix of people. So all I tried to do was to get as qualified as I could, which is, you know, I'll probably... You know, I've probably committed to lifelong learning anyway, so I'll probably always continue to either, you know, CPD or self-develop or whatever. Um, but I was very keen to get to the point where no one could really criticise my academic uh, credibility and hopefully, you know, no one could say, uh, um, I don't know what it's like to actually, you know, walk on the pitch or, or be a coach or be a manager because I can hopefully say that as well. So it was that was my thoughts at the time with that transition but to start, the starting point was to get myself a, a, a become a, yeah. a sole trader to work for myself. Because then, once I got these qualifications as a, th- a therapist, counselor, I could then, you know, advertise that to people. I then started working quite quickly with the PFA very early on. So back in two thousand and nine, I had the idea about uh, the, the safety net, which I don't know whether we're going to talk to, but that talk about. But that's the online. Uh, mental health platform we've literally just launched again now for the for the wider population but the pfa have used that since 2014 well i had the original idea for that in 2009 because it was it sort of dawned on me then that there was a lot of players that were probably struggling with mental health issues and although some of the high profile lads like tony adams paul gascoigne at the time were getting a lot of help through the sporting chance clinic i was just concerned about sort of everyday Joe lads who were going to be retiring and struggling to find a job and all those kind of issues. So the idea came to me then and then we eventually developed it. Um, But in the conversations with that, I'd sort of said to the PFA, look, I'm, I'm seriously thinking about not, you know, not carrying on as a, as a, as a football manager or as a coach, I'd I'd be interested in any sort of, you know, counseling or therapy work because I'm doing some qualifications on that, et cetera, et cetera. And probably, about each, so that was 2009 when I left Chesterfield and went to them with that conversation. By a year later, I hadn't found, I had been looking, I'd been kind of, you know, looking at all options and nothing had happened. So then I contacted them again and said, look, I'm, I'm now look, I'm forgetting about being a manager and a coach. I'm, I'm focusing on becoming a psychologist and uh, I've got these qualifications as a therapist counsellor. So, you know, I could, I could help out and... At that time, the counselling service that is in, in situ now wasn't in place. So there were only a few people who, who, the, who, the, who the PFA pathway people onto. And I became one of them. And so early doors, I, I got, you know, started speaking to players who most of them are probably out, actually out of the game and were just struggling. And um, yeah, so that's how I started. So that gave me a little bit of, and you know, I had some successes with that. So I think that encouraged me that actually, you know, I could ma- yeah. I could maybe make a career in this. Okay, so leading on, you um, now hold um, a role at Liverpool as first team psychologist. Uh-huh. Is that correct? Yeah, yep. ju- just, um, how just like that. Come about? <laughs> just like that. How did that come about? Just, just like that. How did that come about? So that's so we're now in 2020. So what I was talking about there in terms of the. Um, uh, yeah, working with the PFA, that was 2010. Um, and yeah, I remember, yeah, so it's 10 years. So going into 2011, my first gig, my first break in psychology, just stepping back prior to that, I think building up to the turn of 2011, I did a couple of kind of one-off or two or three session hits with groups of players at Sheffield Wednesday with Alan Irving, an old teammate of mine who was, mm. you know, I'm grateful to give me a chance to come in and have a chat about the mental side of the game, which he felt was, was affecting his players. And 
uh, under pressure, and Bradford City with Peter Taylor, again another you know guy who had kind of worked against as a manager and coach, and all of a sudden they were you know offering me sort of some sort of opportunity to go in and have a chat with the lads. Um, then it rolled into 2011, around the same time uh, as I, I think Sean O'Driscoll, who was at Doncaster, he was started showing interest in me going in and doing a bit there. I through a, a mutual friend, I got to speak to a guy called Peter Moores and Glenn Chapel, who were the head coach and captain of Lancashire Cricket Club. And they were looking for somebody uh, to come in and do some part-time sports psychology work. And they were, they'd heard about my, me and were quite interested, probably because most cricketers love football. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> maybe I sounded quite an interest, you know, maybe an interesting sort of option. <laughs> So I went to meet them two guys and fortunately for some reason they, they kind of took to me and they asked me to go in and, and work. So the first year I think I did about 15 days and then the year after it got up to 30 days and it, it just seemed to keep escalating. And fortunately I've st- I am actually still part of that backroom staff there yeah. still to this day. Um, how do you? Uh, so that was my. F- oh, sorry, how do you? How do you find the difference between the professional footballs and the professional cricket? Is it, do you find them quite similar, or do they differ quite a lot? It's both, unfortunately, John. <laughs> the, the, the easy, the the easy get out question is: uh, yeah, there are similarities and differences. That um, yeah, I mean, you know, the cultures. I mean, roughly speaking, I would say the, the, the you've probably got a more diverse. Uh, globally, I'm speaking now, culturally diverse or different sort of diversities, so shall we say, in cricket and in football. So in football, you've got, you know, I would say probably more players from more countries in the world, yeah. whereas in cricket, you've got certain, you know, cultural mixes that, that you know, that are, are obvious. You know, cricket is a, is a Commonwealth uh, uh, game predominantly, isn't it? If you look yeah. at it, it's, it's sort of emerged from the Commonwealth whereas football has kind of spread to all parts of the globe. Uh, cricket is growing, although, to be fair, I think it's growing in popularity. Um, yeah, there, is, there are similarities in terms of team dynamics, you know, uh, personality differences. Um, you know, there are certain pressures that occur probably more in cricket and there are certain challenges that cr- cricketers face that footballers don't and vice versa mm. uh, probably again we'll probably need another podcast to go through <laughs> that um, but um, going back to the, the, the changeover so the first big so I'd started working a little bit at Doncaster in 2011 around the same time that I was um, working at Lancashire so that was kind of February onwards towards the end of that season in the meantime Sam Allardyce had got the sack in the January from Blackburn Rovers um, and left, and then in the summer, in the May, he got the job at West Ham. So, and in the summer of 2011, I got uh, invited to go and speak with Sam, and uh, took up a position at West Ham as sort of spot, as you know consultant sports psychologist, mm-hmm. as he called me then. Uh, so that was my sort of big break, really, because that was Sam had took over; they just got relegated. It was a big mission to get them back promoted, which we did in the first season, and and that was really where I had kind of I was like a proper apprenticeship of being a, a sports psychologist working at a top a big club with a lot of players and a lot of staff, yeah. all with big egos, all needing <laughs> help, and that that was a real challenge, but it was really enjoyable. So I've got you know a lot to thank Sam for because he was quite pivotal, I think, in my career as a psychologist. Yeah, how did that uh, relationship come about then? Was it just off chance of him getting you in, testing you out, or was did did that relationship go back further before the psychology side? Went back a lot, a lot, a long time before. So when I was a player, probably at Blackburn, actually, I met Sam. Mm. Sam would have just finished his career, and I think I'm not sure if he wasn't over in Ireland with his first. He, he just started his management uh, management career. He may have even been a youth team coach. I'm not sure. So I'd met him at, a, at Phil Brown's wedding, funny enough, the old whole city man, <laughs> uh, very briefly. Um, yeah, so met him there, probably had a few beers with him there. Going, so I'd be in my early mid-twenties, something like that. He'd be in his early mid-thirties. Um, and that was then. And then, 
he'd obviously be aware of me as a player being in the North West, playing for all the clubs I played in the North West. He'd know about me as a player. We know so many mutual friends. You, you know, your granddad again being one of them. Um, the Worthingtons, people like that. You know, yeah. fo- football people in the North West. You kind of know everybody, so it would it would be like that. Um, and then rolling on then to, I was doing my pro license on um, the last year of my management career. And Sam was then obviously a top Premier League manager and he was invited to come and award the pro licence ceremony to all the pro licence graduates of which myself and Gareth Southgate were were two of, of many. Mickey Phelan was on that uh, group, Dan Ashworth, there was some, some, some big hitters. <laughs> and I always remember that, uh, both Gareth and I got the sack within two months of getting our pro licence. <laughs> So we got Fantastic. we got fully qualified to get the sack. Um, anyway, Gareth's gone and done okay. He's gone. So I can't remember where's he gone now. Gareth. Anyway, oh, can't think. Um, yeah. So Sam was presenting those awards. So again, you know, afterwards, you know, probably caught up with him, had a chat then, and then lo and behold, a week or so later, I found out that they were looking for a first team coach, and I knew Neil McDonald, who was also Sam's assistant. I'd done a manager's course with him. So it was just a question of you know sending in a CV. I got invited to a short list of initially, I think they shortened down a, a, an application list of about 150 down to 60. Then those 60 got cut down to 10. Those 10 had to come in and do a presentation as to why they should get the job. That got cut down to five. Those five had to go and do a session, a couple of sessions with the Blackburn youth team. And then that five got down to me and Steve Keith. Anyway, so that's the background with Sam. So when he became, uh, but in that presentation, in that uh, that phase ten, if you like, of interviews, I talked a lot about if I, if uh, our psychology was very important to me. I'd already got the psychology degree, and I think I may have mentioned then that if if it didn't work out for me, as a coach or manager, that was something I would probably look into. So I think that stuck in Sam's mind, and that, and he was quite intrigued by the idea of me, as a, an ex-player coach manager, uh, uh, doing the psychology as well, because I think he. Like lots of people are aware that it's not always an easy gig for a psychologist to work in in an environment such as football. So that's how it that's how it stemmed. But that was certainly a big turning point, and I was there for three years with Sam. So what was the next step after West Ham? So after West Ham, oh, I had a bit of a break. I think I was England actually. So Sean O'Driscoll, right. Sean O'Driscoll, yeah. who obviously who I'd worked with at Doncaster and worked again mm-hmm. uh, worked against when I was a coach and manager. Sean was given the under-19s uh, role at England in 2014, that was, and had a real all-star team of players. You're looking at uh, Deli Alley, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, uh, Harry Winks, uh, Ben Cresswell, a lad called Joe Gomez. I wonder what happened to him. <laughs> um, Oh, one or two others. So, so some really talented boys, you know, really talented bunch of players. And we worked with them. I, I he, Sean was because I'd started the psychology role. He was keen. He was of the opinion that again, I'm going to get controversial here. That um, you know, coaching at international level is not necessarily a full time job. <laughs> and that actually, you know, when when you're on these coaching um, these these international breaks that he as coach would want to do all the coaching. He didn't really see the need for an assistant coach, yeah. so to speak, who was going to come in and want to do lots of sessions. He, he liked the idea of someone who could do that if he needed to, but was also more focused on the psychological side of things in terms of the, the breaks and, and, and the time challenge you've got with, the, with that. So he asked me, so that's what I did. I, it was a kind of a strange one. Really. I don't think the role was particularly well-defined. It was a bit rushed. Um, worked okay, but I'm not sure. It, it's quite an quite an interesting angle, I think that. But it's not. It didn't really evolve, um, and we got we lost in the the March series. So you get you kind of like different qualifying stages, and we lost to France uh, in a kind of knockout game, which would have determined us going on to the final four or whatever. Um, in France, they kind of they they out they kind of league twoed us. You know, we were England, supposed to be the kind of up and atom physical side, and we had all the footballers, and they had 
they had all the all the kind of um, you know the Accrington <laughs> without being controversial. I, I, I won't go any further. <laughs> they had all the you know, like, you know whatever. They had the kind of they really did you know set pieces just kick the kick lumps out of us and it was a windy day. I remember <laughs> we got beat, so that was that. And then lo and behold, uh, short. So probably would have carried on with that for the following year, but Sean. Um, because Shot had done well. I mean, up until that game, we'd, the team had played some fantastic football. We were getting, you know, we, at the time, they were getting quite a bit of publicity because you had Ruben, you had that Deli Ali, you had Joe, you had all these players who people were starting to get excited by and thinking, well, when these lads come through, they're going to be playing for England, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but Sean then got the call from Brendan Rogers to go and, and work at Liverpool. So um, that's what he did. So that meant that I kind of left that role and... The next role for me then was with Gary Caldwell at Wigan Athletic and in the first division when we got promoted as champions that year, which was a challenge, uh, which was a task. On from that, uh, he got the sack a year after that. Uh, three or four months go by and then lo and behold, Sam gets the job at Crystal Palace having been at England. So that was 2005. I'm going, I'm just taking you on year by year. But I'll be finished in a second, don't worry, it's pretty quick. So, so that was the... Um, that would be the December, January, sorry, of 2015, I think. Am I right in thing? Or maybe 16. And, yeah, 16. And then, yeah, so went to Palace, where they were bottom of the league, with about three, 12 games to go. Went in then, and then we managed to... Everyone turned that round, and that so Palace stayed up. Sam decided to leave, um, so that was that. So then the next step was Hull, and Hull City... I'd, I'd actually spoken to Hull just before, prior going into Crystal Palace and uh, th- that didn't quite happen. But then in the summer, they'd just got relegated from the Premier League and, and that's uh, so I went in there and I had two years there at Hull. Um, initially with a guy called Leonard Slutsky, who, was, who I didn't, a guy I didn't know, Russian manager. And then he left and Nigel Adkins came in and he was a manager I did know from a long time ago. And so I had... I had sort of 18 months with Nigel before um, coming up to 2019, June 2000, June the 1st, 2019, which is when I signed on the, uh, the dotted line with Liverpool, the day of the Champions League win. So that was all down to me. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that Liverpool are arguably one of the best teams in the world currently. What's it like working within that environment? Um, yeah, extremely feel extremely privileged, humbled and privileged. Those are the two words that spring to mind. Um, more so because obviously, I'm, as, as you can tell, I'm slightly older than you guys. So I I was around, you know, having ne- almost came close to going there. I think because uh, you know, I did speak to Kenny when I was at Blackburn, and I think he was fairly close. Well, the option to go there, should I say, yeah. was, was possibly fairly, fairly close. If I'd have stayed at Halifax, maybe even to the end of that season, maybe something might have happened. Uh, that's by the by. But at that time, they were the best team in the world by far. Or, or that era had been. They were the best football team in the world. There's no doubt about yeah. it. Doug Lee, you know, Kenny had sort of uh, had retired not long before that. So I'm going back to when I was... Uh, 18 so Kenny had probably just retired um, but the team you know that that, that the, do, the domination of the Sooners Daglish Hansen Lorison Grobelar era was was pretty conclusive as conclusive as they are now as we've been in this last 18 months yeah and um, you know and then on, on the back of that Kenny as manager the John Barnes era John Aldridge era etc so Going to finally going to work for that football club, even even just as, as a psychologist, is is fairly humbling and you know very very uh, you know, feel proud that that's happened. As it's always been a club that's you know for me always been one of the big big three or four clubs in this country, uh, and as it's you know as a club, it's very much uh, the values of the club are very I think very down to earth and very commendable. So. The ultimate feeling is of just one of privilege and, and hum- humility that I'm there. You know, it's uh, 
club that is supported unbelievable. I didn't realise how big a club it was. I really didn't. I suppose it's a bit United and, Li- and Liverpool. I think I'd probably be fair to say are the two biggest, uh, the two the two highest supported teams, probably UK teams or English teams, shall we say, globally. And you definitely get the feel of that when we went to pre on pre season tour to America. You know, everywhere we went, it, you know, the players are tre- like it's like they're the Beatles all over again. That's what it felt like, and um, <laughs> so it's it's really interesting to be part of it as as someone who's experienced a little bit of that myself as a player. Um, it's it's very it's very interesting. So from a psychological point of view, it's really interesting, um, but from a personal point of view, it's humbling, and I feel privileged. You know? uh, Lee, what are the challenges exactly that you would um, come down on a day to day basis working with a team that? Are competing for basically every trophy they play in. Yeah, I think the the challenge. I, was, I mentioned this in an, in an interview the other day, and this is what you know. Everybody's focused at a football club, um, whether you're a psychologist or a manager or a coach or a you know a physio or a kit man. Most of it is revolves around the kind of performance cycle of preparing for yeah. perf- performing reflecting on and then refining for the next performance so the whole club is geared around that and the challenges therefore are around maintaining physical mental health fitness and performance so and that's of the players and obviously then by association and everyone around them and that's really I suppose as a psychologist that's what um, you know my main focus is anything I can do to help that process work better or um, any one individual within that environment perform better then that's something that I'm very much switched on to and um, as and I am not the only person by a million miles and that's that that's the case for but you know it really is that it's it's really uh, at any football organization or, or sorry football club or sporting organization that performance cycle is something that I think everybody's very much aware of. Whether you're, yeah. whether you're in the commercial department, you know, trying to sell the game, there's very much there's an impact on everybody. So you, there is that sense that you're all looking at after the same objective, really. What elements of their game do you tend to help them with? Is there specifics? You know, if, it, is it a, if it's a striker, um, where the striker may be coming to you if they're struggling with finishing and it's sort of inside their head and they're looking really... To look at it in a different way, would they come to you? Yeah. Okay. So I've got I've now I've got to try and think about this in terms of how I how I phrase this because I've I am very conscious that one of the reasons why I'm involved in the football as a psychologist is not I, I'm more interested in helping the players ach- right. achieve their potential. Okay. So I, and I'm not I'm I'm just trying to because one of the most important things for me as a psychologist and part of my ethical boundaries are to be you know speaking uh, in terms of uh, protect confidentiality so I'll, I'll just talk in general terms and if you think about the idea of mastery which is the idea of being the best you can be whether that's a podcast interviewer you know working in finance departments whatever it is you know that strive to be the best you can be is a psychological phenomena in itself not everybody has it not everybody maintains it all the time. I didn't, even though I did most of the time. And when I did, that's when I was at my best. We can't always see in ourselves where we are at any one time. We have certain biases that mean that we don't always, we're not always the best judges of where we are or, you know, um, what we're doing, you know, whether it's the right thing. You know, again, going back to your granddad, he'd probably be one of the best people to identify that in people. And that is, again, a psychological awareness of somebody's self-awareness. So if someone's not aware that they're not really, um, you know, functioning at their best, it's not always an easy task to get that or to for players to, for the penny to drop, using a metaphor that we've always yeah. all heard. So there are different challenges and different areas that different players might need help with whether they think they do or not and I suppose there are players again all players are different all players have different personalities you're right to 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 identify um the idea that different players who play different positions may have different common 
factors that, that keep emerging, like, you know, missing chances, etc., etc. Um, uh, but then there are also different skill levels, you know, so uh, different levels of the game. That might be more of an issue for more players than it is at the higher level, you know. I'm trying. I'm not trying to confuse or anything like that. I'm just trying to make sure that I give you, I give you as much insight without without you sort of you know starting to think that it might be referring to any particular player. And part of that is because these lads are so high profile yeah. at Liverpool. I, I have got yeah. to be really really careful. But um, yeah, look, all pl- generally all players, believe it or not, are human beings, <laughs> and they all have feelings. They all have emotions. They all you know, they all they all get down about you know um, when things don't go well, but maybe get up a bit quicker than than some other people do. You know, so there's there are different there are different strengths and areas to improve for all of us, and and footballers are no different, or or sportsmen in general. So there's there's so many areas that you can um, go into, um, but uh, I'm very cautious to do that without. Um, you know, without sort of giving too much away. So um, I'd just say probably in general, you tend to have a third, third, third split, I think, in 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 my experience. And these are all clubs I've been at, so I'm going to broaden it to all football clubs I've worked at as a, as a sports psychologist. But I have to say this, this applies just as much to coaches and managers. So you might have a third of players who are extremely conscientious and... Um, probably look to improve themselves you know as much as they can every day and will look at all avenues of how to do that then you might have a third of players who uh, probably kind of um you know maybe a little bit less consistently do that and then you'll have another third of players who probably don't think they need to improve and just get on with what they do regardless of what they do and depending on what level of the game you're at if you're in that final third who just think they just get on with it and get on with it themselves, but you're brilliant and you're an eight, nine out of ten performer every week anyway, that's probably just going to get you through your career and you're going to be fine. There are those type of players playing in non-league, <laughs> by the way, who think they're so good they can't, they can't. There's no way they can improve, and they're playing for for Frickley Athletic or the Dog and Duck, and they still think they're fantastic. And they can't improve. So there are those, that's the landscape of human nature to an extent. Um, And like I say, those biases are at play at every level. I have to say, at Liverpool, that's one thing I've been most impressed with is this this idea of mastery and wanting to be the best you can be. I think that's pretty much universal throughout the squad. And matched up to that, they've got some decent skill levels. So that makes them pretty... uh, Pretty outstanding. Yeah, I think um, just to wrap it up, we're going through pretty tough times. I think everyone in their life with coronavirus and the whole isolation stuff. How have you been helping the players get through these times? Obviously, they're, they're not playing, they're well, not training. Yeah, well, we've. I mean, we've, we've we've I've sort of put together something, but all the all the staff, as you as you probably know, Joan, you know probably Sam. You know, there's a lot of staff, a lot of people around footballers now um, with some expertise in different areas. And our jobs is to try and provide players with, um, I wouldn't say as much information, but the right information at the right times in the right levels. And so, and that's all you can do. Again, going back to the idea of those thirds of players, you know, a third who will lap up everything you give them, a third who will be a bit hit and miss, and another third who will, you know... Probably won't even care whatever you what it, what you say. It's really just some simple messages around you know accepting the situation is 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 number one. And until you accept situations, um, not for the sake of settling for less than what you would like, but accepting that there are certain things in life that we can control and certain things in life that we can't control. Unfortunately, it appears to me that none of us have being able to control the sense of which coronavirus has kind of um, emerged and place the burden that it, that it has on um, the health services and obviously killed as many people and, and, and put people in serious harm's way. None of us can control that and it's beyond 
football. Therefore, we have to accept that. And we have to accept the new reality that we've had over this last few weeks. Everybody in the world has had to accept that for whatever they do, whether you're a footballer, psychologist, again, whatever role you play in life. Of course, the most disconcerting thing for all of us, I suppose, is the uncertainty around how long that lasts and where we're going. And and part of that, I think, is that actually people are, this has taken people so much by surprise at all levels that there are people, you know, even at the highest level, seem to not really know what's, what's the best thing to do. I can, I think, you know, we can only hope that in the next few months that emerges that we'll we'll come through this, the, the, the levels of illness and the, the death rate will drop to a level that we can get back to some normality. I, I yeah. hope that's going to happen fairly soon. I have to say, you know, we're, we're, we're fairly well into this now and people's experience of it will be probably mixed and probably have, you know, been different at different times. I suppose the big, big message for me would be that for everyone to understand that everything, how, whatever your experience and feeling is actually absolutely normal because this is, this is such an unusual time. It's, that is the abnormality here. That's the unusual, the unusualness of this is what's strange and what's weird, not anyone's individual response to it or reaction because that will depend on lots of different factors like where you're living, who you're living with, what support you've got in place even just on the phone. So it's a challenging time for everybody, everybody on the planet. And, you know, who knows? I mean, that's just my take on it. I can't really give you too much more than that at the moment. Yeah, well, I think that wraps it up nicely. Um, just want to say a massive thank you, Lee, for joining us today. Thank you, Lee. I hope I haven't bored you too much, lads. No, I've, we've learned a lot, I think. So, so might ramble. Fantastic. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much.